Thank you so much. Thanks, Bye. Eric. Yeah, if he couldn't have FaceTime, I have no idea what we would have done. When he's gone, <laughs> we still fuck up and have to FaceTime him. We are recording, so let's stop talking shit about our high school friends. Oh, well, it's, <laughs> it's not like they listen. He doesn't. There's I was yet. like, no one in my high school gives a shit about what I'm doing. Oh, girl. Just <clears throat> perfectly fine by me. Yeah, there are people from college that I know that are listening to our podcast. Oh, yeah, for sure. from high school. high school. Um, so, yes, he's the dude in this picture on the right, and I thought he was hot shit in middle school and high school. That makes sense. Right? That makes sense. He's, he's got cute. that look. He's yeah. a theater nerd, right? Okay, cool. And then as far as, like, <laughs> what he looks like now, um, he's definitely, like, super balding. Um, Oof, that's always the worst. Like, when it's in a weird way. In a, It is in a weird way, too. Not um, that, like, balding is bad. We all understand, like, it happens. Anybody. Yeah, exactly. We're just saying, like, when it's in a weird way, you just, have like, acknowledge it. It's well, like, this is way. him at a wedding, like, last year. Hold on. I have to pull this closer to my face. Oh, no. Yeah, no. Aged very poorly. Um, what we were talking about, ladies and gentlemen, before we started recording this, is people who, like, you were super into in high school who wouldn't give you the time of day, and then you get older, and they age really poorly, and you're like, yeah, suck it. <laughs> Got em. So that's why this started. It wasn't just a, a shaming situation. <laughs> just, but, yeah, this person who I was, like, super into um, and wouldn't wouldn't talk to me, and now... Go fuck yourself. You look like an old man at 30. Life shamed him. So <laughs> I didn't need to shame him. Right. Life shamed him. Life did it for me. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this is Dead Time Stories. Where we talk about ghosts and sometimes shit talk on other people. Right. <laughs> <It's just laughs> what is it becoming? But mostly we shit talk on, on ghosts. other ghosts. Um, Side note, I was uh, I meant to ask you this before we started recording. <laughs> we... Well, ask away now. Um, I was going to ask if we were going to play the Southern Spirits promo again this week. We will be playing the Southern Spirits promo again this week. You want to just dive right on into that with them? I do. That's why Because we didn't last time. We didn't give a little right. bit of a, I know. And doing. then when I listened to how they promoted us, I was like, I wow, know. they were really nice. They were so nice. Um, we're big fans. So Take it away. Take it away. I'm going to say it right here. Um, right so, here? I don't know. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so two weeks ago, we gave a little shout out to them, but we mention them every now and then on our show anyway, because we're big fans. So Leanne Mitch over at Southern Spirits Podcast, we uh, are doing a little promotional thing with them where they played our promo and we're playing their promo. And they're also like just really cool people. And we actually like their podcast. Like aside from, you know, we're trying to cross promote. We genuinely love their show and we listen to it regularly. And they're really funny and really hilarious. And they're Southerners like us, but they still live in the South. And they drink Southern booze and uh, tell ghost stories. And they're really cool. So this is them. Check them out real quick. Hey y'all, I'm Leah Lawrence. I'm her husband Mitch Lawrence. And we host the Southern Spirits Podcast. Each week we'll sip on a Southern brewed craft beer or wine and toss back a Southern distilled liquor and I'll let y'all know how I feel about them with a review. And after we are good and tipsy, I'll bust out a couple of strange spooky tales from the American South. 
We are all about true crimes, mysteries, paranormal activity, and cryptozoology. Basically, if it's Southern and boozy, we'll drink it, and if it's Southern and weird, we'll talk about it. So join us as we drink our way through the folklore of the South. Find the Southern Spirits Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Bye, y'all. Yeah, that was nice. (laughs) I like how we paused. I know, so you can... You know, do it later. Because we listened to the promo. That's yeah. a good promo. Yeah, I like that promo. <laughs> what I like that they, they're, I mean, I like a lot of stuff that they do. I love yeah. their shot in the dark. I love, I think I mentioned this before, the way, I just love the way they go, I apologize, which is a very <laughs> Southern thing. But they'll be like picking on each other or making jokes or whatever. And they're just like, I apologize. Plus, they're both two Southerners. And like they mentioned on theirs, we're both originally from the South. We just migrated up north. Right. And we just don't have accents because we worked really hard to get rid of <laughs> They come back, though. Right. When we go home, when I, I don't know about you, when I go home, like it comes out real bad. And I, but I never really had one. Like, but I also did theater and performance stuff yeah. since I was very little. So, like, worked on my speech for a very long time. But yeah, Sarah's from from Tejas, and I'm from North Kakalaki, <laughs> which is Texas and, uh, and North Carolina. North Carolina. <laughs> so I saw this thing on Facebook, or not Facebook, it was on Instagram that I looked into, where it's basically like, it's basically like fat camp for adults, but like body positive fat camp. Like it's not about losing weight; it's just like fat people getting together to celebrate oh. themselves. <laughs> um, and I was like, that sounds kind of fun. And they were, like, in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. And I was like, oh, shit. And then I clicked on it, and it's fucking outside of Hendersonville, North Carolina, which is where my mom is from. And while I'm completely supportive of this idea for this camp, and that sounds really cool, I would not be comfortable in that space at all. Not anything to do with the camp, but to do with my own history with that area of North Carolina. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, no, there's no relaxing getaway for me in Hendersonville, North Carolina. We're just going to click out of this tab and forget that we read about this. (laughs) Never mind me going to like... (laughs) JK, that was cute. To cool fat camp. But but yeah, so there's that. Like, what was... Where'd that tangent go? (laughs) Where are we going with that one? I don't know. Like, that just came up for me for things that... (laughs) I'm interested in, but like from being from the South and things that are going on in my home state. And I'm like, you know, North Carolina, you are what you are. (laughs) Sometimes I feel that way about Texas. (laughs) I was reading an old journal um, because I was like typing a lot of it up for my um, for my like essay collection that I'm working on. And one of the things that I mentioned, um, I feel like I need to burp. Excuse me. Pardon me. I apologize. That's dedicated to Southern <laughs> That's Spirits. That's dedicated to Southern Spirits. I'm going to leave that one in. It's going to disgust <laughs> me, and I'm going to leave it in. That's for you, Leon. I'm Mitch. trying to remember where I was going with this about North Carolina and Hendersonville and this thing in my journal. I don't know. I already checked out when she burped. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know. I've been drinking this white wine <laughs> all day, ladies and gentlemen. All day. She's had the this, day off. This, this is her day off. Oh yeah, I had the day this off. This is her day, day off. Drinking at work. Yeah. I got exciting news about casting stuff. Um, got offered a position. I told you this. Got offered to do a, a position to do a one woman show next year. I was like, oh yeah. shit, y'all. Yeah. Everything's coming up roses nice and i'm just trying to keep myself and my dog alive ah <sighs> girl can we talk about some ghosts now yes y'all want to so, talk about some ghosts let's talk about some ghosts i'm not actually talking about a ghost um i want to get my 
my timing yeah. straight. I don't know why I brought my, my bullet journal down here. I didn't take any notes in my bullet journal because I'm talking about something that I'm actually pretty familiar with, and you're probably going to laugh as soon as I start talking about it. Um, this case has many names, but we can call it uh, FBI Special Case 203, or we can call it the murder of Brian Wells, or we can call it the case of the collar bomber. Oh my God. <laughs> Which is why I was like, of I course you're going to fucking do this to me today. <laughs> Which is why I was like, I could do the short story if you want, or I could take the long story because I could oh, talk about it. Jesus all Christ. Day. If I had known that's what you're going to talk about, I just wouldn't have done a story. I would have been like, great, I'm not going to do any research. You take it away. <laughs> No, let's do the let's do the medium, you know, short to yeah. banter, long story. Because sure. we both, yeah, we both know this. Yeah. So if you are not familiar, you are in for a treat. You need to get familiar, <laughs> to get familiar. right now. So um, I'm going to start out by saying I'm not a. I like documentaries. I'm not a huge uh, true crime documentary fan, but I became obsessed with this true crime documentary from Netflix that came out in May called Evil Genius. And if you haven't watched it yet, you're going to learn some shit today. And if you have watched it, you're just going to hear me talk about it. <laughs> and if you haven't watched it, we are going to... There's Maybe spoilers. Maybe we'll intrigue you enough. Yeah, spoiler There will be spoilers. Watch it. Now, I tried to watch Making a Murderer forever ago. Netflix suggested it to me, but it runs really slow and it's just not paced very well. And it's it's interesting, but mostly just made me hate the legal justice system and terrified that I could be the kind of person who would give a false confession. So that's Making a Murderer. And then I tried to watch it, but I couldn't get through it. But after I watched Evil Genius like five times, Netflix was like, maybe you want to watch a different true <laughs> series. You want to check out Making a Murderer. You want to watch The Staircase. And The Staircase is all about the trial of Michael Peterson um, in North Carolina, which I could get into that, too. That's another episode. Um, but that's another like, episode. Let's get to this one. All right. <laughs> But we're going to talk about the collar bomber, which is what they talk about in Evil Genius. The only notes that I really need are I need notes on the dates. But other than that, I could tell you everything there is to know about this case because I couldn't tell you how many times I've watched Evil Genius. If you haven't watched it yet, do it. It's only four episodes. It is paced so well. There's a lot of information in each episode, and it keeps you fucking enthralled. It so. does. It so does. Like, you will, <laughs> so you want more, even though you find out every, everything? You find out everything that they know, but what they can never, they can kind of give you, like, who they think did it and who they think is responsible, but the question that's never been answered is really the motive. Like, why? Why, why was this done? So uh, on August 28th, 2003, here in Pennsylvania, it was in Erie, Pennsylvania, which is up north. Um, really close. Towards the border. It's a, within a 15-minute drive, you can get into three different states from Erie, Pennsylvania. So like that's kind of important to this. So there was a man by the name of Brian Wells, and he was a pizza delivery man. And he walked into a bank, and he handed a note to the teller. And the note said that he was wearing a bomb. And that he was demanding $250,000 uh, from the bank. They gave him everything that was in the drawer, which is really only a total of like eight grand. And he left and the police caught him. And he was saying that he had a bomb on him. There was a bomb attached to him. Um, and the cop went up uh, and cut his shirt open and saw that there was indeed a bomb attached to him. Uh, and they all ran back and they were kind of trying to figure out what to do, right? And he said that, like, this bomb was put on him and he was forced to rob the bank. He said by just a group of black guys because that was 
Right, exactly, because that's what you... That's what, that's what white shitty, people do. Right, that's what shitty white people tell the police when they get in trouble. Um, so, anyway... Oh, I can't ask that question, because that's going to give away other things. Oh, other things later, yeah. So, while the police were trying to figure out what to do, and they're waiting on the bomb squad, they're trying to figure out what's going on, like how they should handle this, um, things that you should consider, before I tell you what happens next, is that very few bank robberies are performed with a bomb, right? It's like 3% of bank robberies are performed with a, with a bomb rather than like a gun or whatever. And of those 3%, less than 1% are actually committed with a live device. It's usually a fake bomb or like a dead bomb. It's one that's not going to go off, right? So while they had him there and they're trying to figure out what to do next, they heard a beeping coming from the piece on his chest. And he's like, you know, telling them, like, please, like, please get the key. Like, I don't know who did like get this off of me, get this off of me. Uh, and while they were trying to decide what to do, the beeping got faster and the bomb exploded and Brian Wells died. And they show this. And they show this on they Evil Genius, show you guys. One time. Just once, and out of respect. Right, and it's timed very well. And as soon as the bomb goes off, they then cut to black. So, like, you just see, like, a split second of it and then the aftermath. And then the next time they show it, it's blurred, so you don't really see it. But, spoiler alert, trigger warning, you will see a man, real footage of a man blowing up if you watch Evil Genius. So, if I haven't already intrigued you to watch it, if you're a this sick might fuck not be for you. who wants to watch a man blow up like us on television... Watch Evil Genius. So anyway, so then it became this matter of like, how did this happen? Who did this? He was working. He was a pizza delivery man. And the idea was that he was called to order this pizza to a remote, uh, to deliver the pizza to a really remote location. And while he was there, they beat him up and put the bomb on him and gave him a list of directions that was like a scavenger hunt, several pages as to how to get the key to unlock the bomb. Now... After the fact, um, the police and the FBI, after, you know, doing all sorts of stuff to investigate this case, they followed that scavenger hunt during the same kind of traffic, the same day of the week, the same situation that he would have been in. And they decided that even if he was able to complete the scavenger hunt, if he was able to follow all those directions, there never would have been enough time for him to complete that scavenger hunt before the bomb went off. So... Whether or not he got that money, no matter what, ultimately he was never going to survive that day. That bomb was going to go off and kill that man. So that became part of the question, right, as to like, okay, was this really about the money or was this about killing someone or was this about, you know, what was really like the idea behind this? So there were there were like very few leads. There was very little physical evidence. Um, even the letter that they had, they tried to do a handwriting analysis and what they kind of discovered um, what everyone had agreed to who studies handwriting and that kind of thing was that these letters had been typed and then traced. So someone typed it up and then just traced over the typing. So it wasn't it wasn't real handwriting. Um, it was just a tracing of a typed page because the engine, everything was like perfect and the intentions were all perfect. It was all crazy, right? So as far as like getting handwriting analysis, there was nothing. And as far as like the parts to build the bomb, it was all pieces of household things. There was like a kitchen timer and there was like a little plastic cell phone. Like all these little household items were what were what made up the bomb. So they had very little evidence to actually like lead to a person. 
Uh, so the only lead <laughs> that came about, as they say in the documentary, was they were like, the only evidence, the only way this was ever going to get solved was if someone spilled a secret. Because there was no evidence that they could tie to anyone to definitively say, like, this is the person that did this. It's so crazy and scary all at the same time. Because that wasn't that long ago. Right? Ugh. It was like 15 years ago. It was not that that long long. where you're just like, peep, someone could do this. Someone came up with this and they executed it and they did it. Right? So about three weeks later, the cops get a call from a man uh, whose name is Bill Rothstein. (laughs) Fucking (laughs) Bill. Fucking Bill. So Bill Rothstein calls the police and lets them know that in his basement there is a body of a man named James Roden. If you don't watch this to... To see a guy get blown up, please watch this for Bill fucking for Bill Rothstein, Rothstein. and his performance. You want to talk about Oscar his winner performance <laughs> as himself? <laughs> who, <laughs> who are you in relation? Who is she to you, sir? Uh, I'll get back to that later. <laughs> I'll get back to that later. So uh, this man, Bill Rothstein, calls the cops and tells them that there is a body in the freezer in his basement. And they're like, what the fuck? And this guy lives like two blocks from the place where Brian Wells delivered the last pizza before he went to rob the bank. So they're like, obviously these things are tied. Like, (laughs) these things are totally tied. And they go to his house and they, you know, examine the body. They find it. It's in the freezer. He had been shot in the head with a shotgun and put in the freezer. Bill Rothstein's explanation was there's this woman, Marjorie Deal, who he had previously been in a relationship with, but they'd known each other like since the 70s. They'd known each other a very long time. And he insisted that she's the person who killed James Roden and called him in a panic and begged him to dispose of the body, to do something with the body. So he agreed to put it in his freezer until such a time as they could figure out what to do with it. And ultimately, he said that the reason that he called the cops was because she wanted him to dispose of the body. She wanted him to, like, put it in a meat grinder or do whatever he had to do to chop it up and get rid of it. And it was at that point that he was like... I can't do this anymore. Now this has gone too (laughs) far for me. Sorry, I just hit the microphone. Um, Now we've gone too far. Uh, And so he called the cops. He's like, I can't do this. There's a body in my basement. I hid it for this woman. I didn't kill him, but like, this is what's up. Then he took a plea bargain where he agreed basically to, you know, admit everything that for not immunity, but I think for like a reduced sentence. If he told them all of his involvement of everything that happened, then they would give him a lighter sentence and like let him go right if he told you everything that there was to know about marjorie deal so (laughs) he told him um you know that she had admitted to killing the person but he didn't have anything to do with it he only put the body in his thing and they were like well you live really close to this site where brian wells delivered his last pizza and he's like we had nothing to do with that that has absolutely nothing to do with this i just want to let you guys know like this is a totally separate thing And then he had supposedly tried to kill himself and left a suicide note. And the first thing it said in the suicide note was, this has nothing to do with the Wells case. And they were like, so why did you put in your suicide note that had nothing to do with the Wells case? And his response was, he was like, well, because I know that that happened close by and like we have no connection to that. And I know because it happened close by, like you guys would just waste so much time trying to connect us to that bank robbery. And I just didn't want you to waste your time. Like, I just wanted to let you know, like, don't even bother looking at that because we have nothing to do with that. 
and they investigate him a little bit, but they didn't have any evidence other than it was close in proximity to where he lived, and they just kind of let it go, and they didn't examine him or Marjorie Deal as a suspect. They were only investigating them for the murder of James Roden. James Roden was like her boyfriend at the time. Now, she said that she killed him over, like, he had been hitting her and, like, you know, he had other women around and blah, blah, blah. What you need to know about Marjorie Deal is that Marjorie Deal has had several boyfriends and husbands die under mysterious circumstances. <laughs> her first husband um, fell and hit his head on the coffee table. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. Um, and she uh, sued the hospital for negligence and ultimately won like a lot of money and had most of her money that she had. Um, she had rich parents, but she also had a lot of money from lawsuits. But also fucking white people and their welfare fraud because most of her money she kept in cash in the house she didn't keep it in like banks and stuff because she was super paranoid and didn't want to pay taxes so um she was on welfare even though this woman had literally millions of dollars stashed in her house (laughs) fuck her anyway so what you should also know is there was a boyfriend that she admittedly killed in the 80s. So this was someone that she claimed self-defense. She said he was hitting her, this, that, and the other. And she shot him, but she shot him in his sleep. But she said that it was because he had terrorized her for years and this, that, and the other. So she has admittedly already killed one boyfriend. She has a husband who died under mysterious circumstances. She has another boyfriend who supposedly hung himself if she didn't fucking do it or lead him to doing it. So she has like a like a like a line of men in her past, right? So she at first was like, I didn't kill James Roden. I loved him. And there's like you can hear her with the person who's like the filmmaker who was talking to her like crying where she's like, I didn't do it. I love him. I never would have done this, blah, blah, blah. But then ultimately, when she had no other excuses, she was like, "Okay, I killed James Roden. But it was self-defense because he was hitting me and he was seeing other women, which like that's literally exactly what she said about the boyfriend that she killed in the 80s. Um, She has a type. What can you say? Right. But many of the women in the prison that dealt with her actually said that she admitted to them that she killed James Roden because he wouldn't help with the bank heist that they were planning. Uh, He was supposed to be a getaway driver for them, and he refused, and he didn't want anything to do with it, and he was going to go to the cops, and that was why she killed James Roden. Now, this is according to to a couple of the women in the prison who one of them, her name was Kelly Makala, actually took notes on visits that she had with Marge where Marge would talk about the case and laugh about it. Uh, one woman, I thought this is one of the most intriguing scenes in the whole documentary, was just talking about how Marjorie... Um, had one who she was incredibly manipulative and had one face that she would show the guards and one face that she would show the other inmates. And when it came to the guards, she just wanted them to think she was as crazy as possible because ultimately she would use insanity as a, as a method of defense. Like that was her like backup plan if they came after her for other things. And she <laughs> said that Marjorie would stand in the mirror for hours shaving her eyebrows. And she was like, if you shave your eyebrows, how long does that take? A second? Like, it's one quick wipe. She would literally stand there for hours shaving her eyebrows just so the guards would think she was a fucking lunatic. I'm just like, how fucked up was her skin? (sighs) I don't know. So... 
as things have gone on, right, they did a handwriting analysis, not of the actual letter because it had been typed, but because there was indented handwriting on that paper that they found that they were ultimately able to tie to Bill Rothstein. But the issue with Bill Rothstein is after he admitted to what he did admit to and refused that he had anything to do with the Wells case, uh, it turned out Bill Rothstein actually had cancer and he died before anything could go to trial, before any cases could be held. God damn Bill Bill Rothstein. Rothstein. And there's some thoughts that like maybe he knew he was dying um, and he like my personal opinion, right, is that he helped her with James Roden. Um, but then when she wanted him to dispose of it, that was literally too much for him. And he was willing to go to the police to get rid of the body, but wouldn't confess to the robbery because he didn't want he knew that ultimately he wouldn't be paying the price for that. It would be Marjorie. And he was still in love with Marjorie. Um, so there are several players in this scene. Right. And another person is Ken Barnes. Uh, Ken Barnes was a fishing buddy of Marjorie, who uh, was also a drug dealer who his relationship with Brian Wells, who is the pizza delivery guy who ultimately was murdered with the bomb on his neck. Um, they had a mutual friend in common named Jessica Hoopsick, who was a prostitute who would come to Kenneth Barnes to buy drugs. Um, but she would service Brian Wells. And they had a whole system where basically like Brian would give her a ride over to Ken's house where she would buy drugs from Ken. And then her and Brian would like have sex upstairs. And like that was their whole thing. And the authorities tried to talk to Jessica many times and she would not say anything to them about anything that she may or may not know. So Ken Barnes is ultimately the one who came forward, who said, look, it was all Bill and Marge's idea. Uh, we thought the bomb was going to be fake. We were told the bomb was going to be fake. We had planned with Brian for Brian to come at this time, and we were going to put the bomb on him. And that's a big thing in this case is how much did Brian Wells know? Was Brian Wells really just working that day and whatever pizza guy showed up, they were going to put it on him? Or did they know him ahead of time? Was he in on it? What did he know about the situation? And that was still all a big mystery because Marge refused to involve, admit that she was involved in any capacity. And Ken Barnes said that they were all involved, but that Brian knew about it and that Brian was part of it too. Now, what some people think is that Brian wasn't involved, but if Brian wasn't involved, then everyone else involved could be up for the death penalty. And the reason that they say that he agreed to it, that he was in on it, was more because they were afraid of the death penalty than anything else. Um, but if he wasn't in on it, right, they could all be tried for his murder and they could be put up for death. So... Ultimately, Marge never admitted that she had anything to do with the collar bombing. Collar bombing. She insisted for, you know, up until she passed away in, I believe, 2015, that she had absolutely nothing to do with it. Now, the creator of the documentary follows the case, I want to say from like 2007, like one, like a little bit before the trial starts. And the trial, I think, started in 2010. Mm -hmm. um, again, the original like situation actually happened in 2003. So they never, no one has ever been charged with the murder of Brian Wells. That could never be proven as far as who did what. Marjorie Deal was in prison for the murder of James Roden. So the boyfriend that she killed, that's what she was serving time for. Not for the collar bombing, not for the murder of Brian Wells. But in 2013, Jessica Hoopsick, who was the prostitute friend of both Brian Wells and Cocaine Ken, uh, the drug dealer, she finally decided to come forward and tell her side of the story. And what she had to say was that basically Brian Wells was a patsy and she was the one who set him up. 
So she confessed to the documentary filmmaker that uh, she had been friends with Brian with with cocaine Ken with Ken and she was with him uh, and there were other people at the house and she heard them discussing a bank robbery and she said a woman was there but she later learned that woman was Marjorie Deal and that they were talking about how they needed somebody who they could set up to do this bank robbery without somebody who would be able to be scared into doing it, but wouldn't call the cops and wouldn't cause them any trouble. Um, somebody who was basically a pushover. And she was like, yeah, I know somebody. And like, she's clearly incredibly remorseful of, of the role that she played. But she talks about how, you know, at the time, like she was on drugs and she was doing it for the money and for the drugs. And she didn't believe that the bomb would be real, that she thought, you know, it was going to be a fake bomb and it was whatever. Um, and she wanted the money and the drugs. So she was like, yeah, I know somebody. And she brought him around, but he wasn't in on the conversation or any of the plans. They were just like, yeah, he seems like the guy. And she's like, yeah, that's Brian. Like, you could totally, totally do this to him. Like, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do any. He would just do exactly what you told him. So ultimately, that's how they ordered the pizza. And the person who answered the phone originally was the owner who said he couldn't understand what was being said on the phone. And he gave the phone to Brian Wells. And they gave the directions to Brian as to where to come and where to meet them. And then when Brian got there, they put the collar on him and gave him the scavenger hunt notes and sent him to rob the bank. The questions that are really still unanswered because we're pretty you're like the the filmmaker definitely is like, look, I Marge was involved. Like this is what's up. Mm-hmm. The questions that are still there are really the why. Like Marjorie had money. Ken Barnes, who was the Coke dealer who was in on it, said that she wanted him to kill her father because her father was giving her inheritance away um, to other people, and that she wanted to use the bank proceeds to pay Kenneth Barnes to kill her dad. Bill Rothstein had also put his house on the market for $250,000, which is the amount of money that the note had asked for. So there's confusion as far as like, was it about the money? Was it about the, what was it about? Because Bill Rothstein supposedly also was in a money situation. So while there's a lot of evidence pointing to like the hows of how this happened and the who did it and who was involved, what there really isn't is the answer of why. Like, why did they do this? Why did this happen? Uh, some theories believe that Bill Rothstein knew he was dying and just wanted to prove that he was smarter than the police, to prove that he could do something that would just absolutely confound them and it had absolutely nothing to do with the money. No one knows. The ultimate answer is no one knows why this was done. And there are strong theories as to the who. But as far as the why, I don't know. That I can't tell you. That's the really scary, unsolved part of this story. So, Evil Genius. This <laughs> is a docuseries. Now on Netflix. On Netflix. If this wasn't too spoilery for you, because, I mean, I told you a lot of the things of it. There's still, still a lot more I in there. I have watched, I literally can't tell you how many times I've watched this documentary so series, like at least a dozen times. If I can't think of what I want to watch, I put it on because it is so fascinating. And even if it's like messed up and desensitized me to the footage of a man blowing up in front of the police. <laughs> There are so many details I didn't give you. There's so much information about this case. So uh, read about it if you can. But if you haven't watched Evil Genius on Netflix, I hope that you will. Because it is seriously the most bizarre and just absolutely fucking strange, crazy, 
case that you've ever heard. And it's completely real. It's a real thing that happened. And there are so many layers and so many levels to it. So I would love for you guys to watch it and tell us what you think about Marjorie Deal and Bill Rothstein. And you can always... Email us at deadtime stories, all one word with a G, with a Z, with a G, G. with a Z at gmail.com. We're rebranding. <laughs> and reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, all the things. But we'd love to hear what you have to say. But yeah, I'm fucking obsessed. Sarah. She's not kidding, guys. What are you talking about this week? Today I'm going to talk about some murder. Murder! Murder! Yeah, we're not really getting any any uh any ghosts this week. We're just talking about we're just spooky talking about shit. Fuck it's it. not always ghosts. I don't know if it's Bizarre spooky. And... I'm like, it's it's scary. People are scary. And the things that people do to each other is scary. People are fucked up. Let me tell you about this one fucked up person. Please do. This is the story. I get adjusted. This is the story of the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. Okay. So we're taking it back down south. Uh, Texarkana, for those of you who don't know and can't put the two and two together, is a small little city that is right on the border of Texas and Arkansas. Uh, It's technically in Arkansas, but it's called Texarkana. Sure. This takes place between February 22nd and May 3rd of 1946. A serial killer dubbed the Phantom Killer or the Phantom Slayer sent the small town of Texarkana into a panic, attacking eight people and killing five over the course of ten days. Ten weeks. Ten weeks. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Still, that would have been way crazier. I was just like, Jesus Christ. But ten weeks is Ten still weeks. Impressive. Ten weeks. Yes. Impressive. It, in oh, the no. 40s? Yeah. Right. The Let's word not. I feel like I wish I used. That guy deserves a plaque. Um... So first, around 11.45 p.m. on Friday, February 22nd, 1946, Jimmy Hollis, 25, and his girlfriend, Mary Jean Larry, 19, were parked on a secluded road known as Lover's Lane when a man... I know. Yeah. Really? Um, (laughs) Did you expect anything else? When a man flashed a flashlight in the driver's side window, the man was apparently wearing a white cloth mask resembling a pillowcase with the eyes cut out and he told jimmy i don't want to kill you fellow so do what i say Fuck. so both hollis and larry the girl and the boy were ordered out the driver's side door the man ordered hollis to take off his goddamn britches these are all quotes after jimmy complied the man struck him in the head twice with the pistol larry the girl would later tell investigators that the noise was so loud she had initially thought he had been shot when in fact it had been his skull fracturing thinking the assailant wanted to rob them mary showed him uh, hollis's wallet to prove that he had no money after which she was struck with a blunt object the assailant ordered her to stand and when she did he told her to run Initially, she tried to flee towards a ditch, but the assailant ordered her to run a different direction up the road. Uh, Larry spotted an old car parked off the road, but she found it empty and was again confronted by the attacker who asked her why she was running. And when she responded that he had told her to do so, he called her a liar before knocking her down and sexually assaulting her with the barrel of his gun. After the assault, she fled on foot, running a half mile to a nearby house. A car passed by the residence, which she attempted to call for, but she was ignored. She was able to awaken the residents of the house and phone the police. 
Meanwhile, Jimmy had regained consciousness and he had managed to flag down a passerby on the road. She was hospitalized overnight for minor head wounds and he was hospitalized for several days to recover from multiple skull fractures, but they both ultimately survived the attack. Shit. And that was the first one. I was one. saying they were the first ones. They were the first ones to be attacked. Because he was just learning. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. So Jimmy and Mary, I go back and forth between using their last names and first names, but the they gave conflicting reports to law enforcement as to what their attacker looked like. So the girl claimed that the man was wearing a white bag over his head with cutouts for eyes and mouth and that she could see under the mask that... He was apparently African-American because it's white people in the 40s. Right, I was going to say because they're fucking shitty white people. I was like when you, when you mentioned that in your story, I'm like, oh, right, yeah, These white people. recurring theme, shitty white people who are like, I don't know, he was black. He had a bag on his head, but Fuck he had you. to be black. Fuck you, white but, people. Uh, to give her benefit of the doubt, though, whoever it was that did it did sexually assault her with the barrel of a gun. If, I don't know why that gives her the benefit. Of the I don't know, but I'm just like, I don't, black. I also don't want to be like, fuck you, bitch, when it's like, oh, she had a really don't. No, I'm sure she did. I'm sure she had a horrible experience, but she was like, um, under the shade of the sheet, his skin was dark. Jimmy alternately claimed that he was white and around 30 years old, but conceded he could not distinguish his features as he had been blinded with the flashlight. Um, but they both agreed that he was around six feet tall. Okay. Now, a month later, so he waits a month, we have Richard Gr- Richard Griffin, 29, and his girlfriend of six weeks, Polly Moore, 17. Again, I just want to take a moment to be like, it's the 40s. Look at these age <sighs> gaps. Polly. <laughs> Oh, I was going with he's 29 and she's 17. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I. That's what jumped out at me. They were found dead in his car by a passing motorist. Uh, the motorist saw the parked car on a lover's lane and at first thought the couple was asleep because it was found on a road um, nearby like a club. He was like, they passed out after the afterglow. Yeah, exactly. Griffin, Richard, was found between the front seats on his knees with his head resting on his hands, and his pockets had been turned inside out, and Polly was found sprawled face down in the back seat. Now, he had been shot twice while still in the car, and they both had been shot once in the back of the head, and they both were fully clothed. A blood-soaked patch of uh, dirt near the car suggested to police that both had been killed outside of the car and then placed back inside. Congealed blood was found covering the running board and had flowed through the bottom of the car door, and a thirty-two cartridge cartridge shell was also found, possibly shot from a Colt inside the blanket. So now they have like a shell casing. Sure. Right? So the other thing we have, and as we talk about this, is this is a very small town in Texas, and it's suddenly being racked with these like crazy assaults. So in response to the murders, the police launched a citywide investigation along with the Texas and the Arkansas City Police, because also you're dealing with a border town, and the Department of Public Safety, two side county sheriff's departments, and the FBI ended up getting involved. By March 27th, so we're only doing a few days, local police had interviewed around 50 to 60 witnesses, and by March 30th, police had posted a $500 reward in an effort to gain any new information on the murder that would lead to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible. However, the rewards yielded no fruitful clues or suspects, instead producing over 100 false leads. Yeah. On the evening of Saturday, April 13th, 
So the in-between, like, first one was February 22nd, second one March 27th, third one April 13th. Betty Jo Booker, age 15, was uh, playing her... Her 30-year-old boyfriend. (laughs) Right? This is the only one that makes sense. Uh, She was out playing her saxophone in in her regular weekly gig with her band, and around 1.30 a.m. Sunday morning, her friend Paul Martin, 16 arrived to pick her up from the performance. That was the last time that anyone saw them. Martin's body was found at 6.30 a.m. Sunday morning, lying on its left side by the northern edge of the road. Blood was found further down on the other side of the road by a fence. He had been shot four times. Christ almighty. Jesus. And because it's murders, I don't have any, like, buildup. We're just diving right into it. Right. He had been shot four times. Once through the nose, again, once through the nose, again through the left side of his ribs from behind, a third time in his right hand, and finally through the back of the neck. Betty's body was not found until around 11.30 a.m., and she was almost two miles away from Paul Martin's body behind a tree. She was laying on her back, fully clothed, with her right hand in the pocket of her overcoat. She had been shot twice, once through the chest and once in the face. The weapon was the same used in the first double murder, a thirty-two automatic Colt. Martin's car was found about three miles away from Betty Joe's body, about a mile and a half away from Martin's body, parked with the keys still in it. Authorities are not sure who was shot first, but examinations of the bodies indicated that they had both put up terrific struggles. So I think when I hear about defensive wounds, it bothers me more than like the wounds that actually killed them, because I'm like that means that they were alive and they felt all of it to fight and feel it. I know that's way more horrifying. And if you think about these last two attacks and then the first attack, to a certain degree, he apparently has a style. He's attacking them in their car. He's asking them to get out of the car. And then he's attacking them and he's either being successful or he's letting them get away. And I think with the first one, he probably thought that he killed that dude when he hit him across the head and heard that if it was so loud, it was like a pistol. Then he was like, well, I'm going to play with her and then ended up letting her get away. Second time around, he didn't make that's what, yeah, that that's what trouble. I'm saying. Like, the first time is when and they, like, he, they learn. Yeah. And then they go, okay, like, this is... Yeah, this is what I need to fix. The way you do any... This, I feel awful. Because, like, the way you, as a creative person, do anything where you're like, okay, this is what I did right. Yeah. And if I did this again, like, next time I would do this, this, and this, and not this, this, and this. And he's like, yeah. you know, what I did right was um, get them out of the cars and kill them. What I didn't do right was letting them get away, making sure, not making sure they were dead. Next time I will make sure I always make sure that they're dead. Yeah. So it just makes me, I don't know, because the second two were found in their car neatly placed, but then Betty, Joe, and Paul got away, but they were shot but they were not put back in the car they were just left where they were so then that was april 13th friday made third sometime before 9 p.m virgil starks who's 37 was at his home on his 500 acre farm about 10 miles northeast of texarkana he was in the living room in his favorite armchair listening to his radio show while his wife katie was in the bedroom 
Katie heard something in the backyard, asked Virgil to turn down the radio, and seconds later, while Virgil was back reading his paper and listening to his stories, two shots were fired into the back of his head from a closed double window three feet away. Katie did not hear the gunshots. Instead, she heard what sounded like the breaking of glass. So she thought Virgil had dropped something, and she went into the living room. As she entered the doorway, she saw Virgil standing up and then suddenly slumped back into his chair. She saw blood, ran to him, and lifted up his head, and upon realizing that he was dead, she ran to the phone to call police. She rang the wall crank phone two times before being shot twice in the face from the same window. One bullet entered her right cheek and exited behind her left ear. The other went into her lower jaw just below the lip, breaking it and splintering out several teeth before lodging under her tongue. She dropped to her knees, but soon managed to get on her feet. She ran to get a pistol from the living room, but she was blinded by her own blood. Then she heard the killer tearing loose the rusted screen wire on the back porch door. She thought she was going to be killed, so she stumbled toward her bedroom near the front of the house to leave a note. Meanwhile, the killer ran to the back of the house and made his way up the steps into the side-screened porch through the back screen door. She heard him coming through the kitchen window, so she turned around. She ran through the dining room, through the bedroom, down a hallway, through another bedroom, then into the living room and out the front door. We know this because she was leaving behind, quote, virtual river of blood and teeth throughout the house and across the street. Barefooted and still in her blood-soaked nightgown, she ran across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house. No one was home. So she ran 50 yards to A.V. Prater's house, probably pronouncing that wrong, another neighbor's house 50 yards away. He answered the door. She gasped, Virgil's dead, and then she collapsed. Much in Texas style, he shot a rifle in the air to summon the other neighbor, Elmer Taylor. Taylor, along with Mr. and Mrs. Prater and their baby, because when there's a killer on the loose, you pile everyone into the goddamn car and make sure they all go. And they took her to the hospital. On the way, Katie gave Mr. Taylor one of her teeth with a gold filling that had fallen out. Surprisingly enough, she was in a semi-conscious state, and even though she had lost a considerable amount of blood, she showed no signs of going into shock, and her heart rate remained normal. Right? She was like, are you fucking kidding? I'm staying awake for this shit. Well, that's because Texas breeds badass bitches. (laughs) I'm like, that bitch fucking, she got shot in the face face. twice. And she fucking picked her ass up, and she was like, I'm going to die. I should leave a note. note. And that's why Why you you always leave leave a note. note. You never know. But then she was like, fuck no, I got to get out of here. She managed to get out of the house while the killer was inside the house. She ran to her next door neighbor. They're not there. She runs another 50 yards. Shot in the face. Twice. I can't. She's a badass bitch. And how old was she? She's like in her 30s. I didn't say. I didn't say how old she was. She's in her 30s. No, she was 19. She's a grown-ass woman. (laughs) She was 19. Her husband was 52. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. They've been married for three years. Right. They've been married for 12 years. (laughs) It is Arkansas. So, she survived and ended up making it through. So, these murders were unlike anything this small town had 
ever You're seen. You're fucking kidding. And of course, through this period of time, it set everyone into a panic. Um, after the first double murder, some parents warned their children about being out late. They thought they, you know, he's just attacking like, kids out on lovers' night. Get you by the river, like don't fucking go out there by yourself. Don't go out there by yourself. And you know what? Especially if you're going out there with a lady boyfriend, you guys stay away from don't lovers, go to lane. lovers' lane. The second double murder shocked the city, and they set curfews for businesses. The height of the town's hysteria snowballed after this last murder of Virgil Starks. The Texarkana's Gazette stated on Sunday, May 5th, that the killer might strike again at any moment, at any place, and at any one. Anytime, yeah, anybody. Before, it was normal to leave your house unlocked, but soon residents started locking doors, pulling down shades, blocking windows, and arming themselves with guns. Some people would nail sheets over their windows or nail the window down. The next day after Stark's death, several residents went out and bought firearms and locks. Stores sold out of their locks, guns, ammunitions, window shades, Venetian blinds. Other items that sold well included window sash locks, screen door hooks, night latches, and any other sort of protective device. Several businesses, including cafes, theaters, and nightclubs, lost many customers. One business even reported a 20% drop. Because of the drop in business, liquor stores started closing at 9.30 and posted a statement in the paper saying, We fully understand the state of mind in which Texarkana is now gripped, and we are selling no liquor to persons who already have been drinking. We do not wish to add further to the troubles of the police. Any person who drinks whiskey at this time to get drunk and wander about the streets of Texarkana is further complicating the works of the police and is placing himself in grave danger of being shot by people whose nerves are on edge from the recent murders. Yeah, I was going to say, I was, I was like, obviously, a drunk person wandering the street is not the killer's type. But right, if I was terrified of a killer on the loose and there's a drunk asshole wandering the street, I'd be like, I that's shoot a funny killer. Right. Yeah. And again, you're dealing with Texas. Everyone has their guns and they all went and restocked. Don't mess with Texas. That's what they say. Yeah, they don't... also say, God bless Texas. And they um, also say, we still have the death penalty. They do. They do say that. <laughs> They, uh, they, you know, they like them big. Go big or go home. That's it. That's Texas. Um, so since citizens were so jittery and armed with guns, Texarkana was a very dangerous place. Officers had to turn their sirens on when they drove up. They'd have to get out and stand in their headlights and announce themselves to keep from being shot, shot. by a nervous homeowner. And it, can you imagine that shit nowadays? Officers having to be like, I'm sorry, I'm a police. Please don't shoot me instead of the other way around. I'm black. Please don't shoot me. You're the police. No, what I was going to say is I was just like, God damn it. That's the thing that frustrates me not to get too political. But that's what frustrates me the most about guns is I'm like, yeah, I'm sure it's awful that the people who want to kill people are going to find a way to kill people. And he killed like 10 people. And that's terrible. I'm wondering if like he killed like 10 people, but like 20 people just got killed by I don't know if anyone like townspeople who were like, it's the murderer. Bang. Like. I don't Ugh. think anyone actually got, got shot, but sure. everyone was just really jittery and they were calling in shit to the police oh, like sure. crazy. All the time. And that's why the police were There's just like, guy. he drank too much whiskey. He's walking the streets. He's a murderer. Well, here's some. Um, so 
In addition to arming and barricading themselves, residents took to extreme measures such as creating booby traps, installing lights, and even temporarily moving into hotels or relatives' homes for safety in numbers. Uh, Overnight watches were kept. Tensions were high, with police questioning anyone who appeared suspect. More than a week after the death of Mr. Starks, police departments on both sides of the city were still being swamped with excited calls about prowlers and gunshots. Reports ranged from the possible to the ridiculous, yet the officers diligently checked on every Every single report. On Friday, May 10th, officers rushed to a home on Olive Street with reports of strange noises coming from an upstairs room, and they found a cat thrashing about in a trash can. So people were on edge. (laughs) Although most of the town was in fear of the phantom, which it's got its name because no one could figure out who it was. Some kids continued parking on the lonely roads. Some of them hoped to apprehend the evasive slayer. Bunch of assholes. One night, uh, an officer, Tilmer Do- Tillman Johnson, was patrolling a lonely road with an Arkansas state trooper when they came up to a parked car. Uh, Johnson got out while the other officer stayed behind. He walked up to the car and noticed a couple. He said, I am Tillman Johnson with Mayor County Sheriff Department. Aren't you scared to be parked out here at night? And the girl replied, because Texas raised some badass bitches, you're the one that ought to be scared, mister. It's a good thing you told me who you are. And she revealed she's pointing a 25 pistol at him the whole time. Such a Southern thing. It's a good thing you told me who you are, mister. Quick note, there's like a joke about this old lady having a bunch of guns. And the cop was like, what are you afraid of? And the old lady was like, nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Was that that grandmother in Houston who shot out the guy who was trying to break into her house (laughs) masturbating? She's fucking dope as hell. Texas raises some badass bitches. Every three weeks that went by, when there were no murders, the town's fear began to drop little by little. So, of course, as time went on, people began to settle down. The hysteria lasted throughout the summer and eventually faded around three months later. Uh, The Texas Rangers and the rest quietly left Texarkana little by little through October. It was not announced to keep the Phantom from attempting another attack. Throughout the investigations of the Phantom Killer case, almost 400 suspects were arrested. Christ! But to this day, no one has been charged with the crimes, and we have no idea who the real murderer is. Side note on that as well, there, and I didn't get too deep into this, because this is one, too, where I'm like, I could get super deep into this and all the other side things, but there are some people who think that the last murder, Virgil Starks and possibly Katie, were not associated with the original three attacks. That, actually. Um, but there were no other murders in and around the area. Mm-hmm. He didn't have any enemies. You know, they really had no other leads, and it seemed to be fitting. So there is one prime suspect that many believe to be the phantom killer. And one guy wrote a whole book on it, saying that he thinks he's got the definitive reasons. Yeah. His name's Yule Swinney. He was capped. Yule, so I'm sold. Right? It's like, he's just basically a Southern. I'm just like, what do we call him? Yule, call him that. Yule kill people when you grow up. Ooh, Yule Swinney. Um, I'm like, that sounds like a murderer name. I know. Go ahead. Uh, Was captured on July 1946 by Max Tackett, a rookie police officer who had been following a lead on the murders around a car theft that had originally led him to Swinney's wife, Peggy. 
Peggy had confessed in great detail that he was the phantom killer and that he had killed Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin, which were the two last ones, the young ones. Mm-hmm. By law in 1946, however, Peggy was could not be made to testify against her husband. Because they were married. Because she, and because she was considered an unreliable witness. Yule was not arrested for murder. Instead, only with circumstantial evidence, he was sent to prison for being a habitual offender for car theft. So he was basically stealing cars, going across state lines and selling them, stealing cars, going across state lines and selling them. And finding out about that, in some way, this police officer thought that it was a weird coincidence that these things were happening in and around the same area as the murders. He followed it found one car, led him to this guy's wife, and she was like, yeah, he's been doing these things with cars. He's in another state right now. He killed these kids. How did you know Like he killed these kids? So this... And Al Capone was arrested on tax evasion. Yeah, it was like, like, though they got him for... So they were able to get him for car theft, and um, I believe he ended up dying in prison, but was never charged for the phantom killer and never admitted to doing it. The circumstantial evidence they did have against him was that the car that she had been arrested for was the one reported stolen on the night of the Griffin and Moore murders, which were the first murders. Mm -hmm. Um, When Tackett caught Yule Swinney originally, Swinney said, please don't shoot me, to which Tackett, the police officer, said, I'm not going to shoot you for stealing cars, to which Swinney then replied, Mr. Don't play games with me. You want me for more than stealing cars. What? When he was in the police car, he asked Tillman Johnson, which you'll remember from the previous, Mr. Johnson, what do you think they'll do to me for this? Will they give me the chair? To which Johnson responded with, you won't get much, maybe five or ten years. They don't give the electric chair for For stealing stealing cars. cars. Which Swinney then said, Mr. Johnson, you got me for more than stealing cars. When a lawyer told Peggy that her husband was being held for murder, she exclaimed, how did they find it out? And Yule Swinney owned a 32 Colt automatic. Fuck. But he had previously sold it at a crap game. So that's what they have four that lines up and makes it look like, oh, this guy might have done it. But it's, yeah, all circumstantial. Complications. His fingerprints did not mitch, match any of the prints found at the Booker Anywhere. Martin crime scene, which they found prints at the crime scene. Uh, his wife ended up recanting her confession. Girl. Yep. And officers, both state police departments, both states, worked day and night for six months trying to validate Peggy Swinney's story of their whereabouts. And they deduced that Peggy was not telling the truth and that on the night of the murder of Booker and Martin, the couple was sleeping in their car under a bridge near San Antonio. Unknown is either, this is also fucked up, this is either a sick prank or a true confession An anonymous woman contacted family members of the victims, one in 1999 and another in 2000, apologizing for what her father had done. Yule Swinney never had a daughter. So dropped right now. Y'all can't see it. I don't know. There's nothing else about those phone calls that I really could find. Again, I probably didn't dive into this as deep as I could have, you guys. So if you know more info about these phone calls, please let me know. But yeah, apparently called some woman contacted the family of the victims in 99 and in 2000 and stating she's like the daughter of the murderer and apologized for what her father had done. But this guy that they think who did it never had a daughter. In 1976, Charles B. Pierce, a native of Texarkana, made the horror movie The Town That Dreaded Sundown based on the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. 
And every October, it is the last movie shown during their Movies in the Park series, a free event sponsored by the Texarkana Parks and Rec Department. The showing has been a tradition since 2003, and I believe they said in 2015 they had like 600 people show up. So now it's like a fucking tradition so for this go, town right, you and me. to go see, see that we definitely should watch this movie especially because it's a 76 movie so it's not that scary another cool thing about this is they say that these murders are potentially one of the tiny little basis foundations for that urban legend of the couple in the car at midnight and they hear scratching on the door and they've heard about a hook-handed murderer out and about and when they finally go to get out of the car they find a hook on the door you know, there's various variations of that ghost story that people tell around the campfire. I have you ever seen Adventures in Babysitting? Yes. I was gonna say I just think about the part of the story she's telling them in the car about the babysitter, and there's a guy with a hook for a hand, and then there's the truck driver who's got the hook hand, and they're like, "Oh my god, he's he just wants to scrape our faces off, but he's actually really nice. He just happens to have a hook for a hand." Mm-hmm. And I mean, I growing up, I always remember hearing variations of like a ghost story of kids out i don't know why i thought you were gonna tell me a story about growing up knowing somebody with a hook for a hand who was actually a totally nice person no sorry i didn't i didn't know anyone with hooks for hands unfortunately i just heard a ghost story about you know kids hanging out on a lover's lane and you know eek 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 right eek. i did a motion of, a, a of a hook hand. right yeah exactly um so I that's that's the story of the Texarkana Moonlight Ooh. Murders. We don't know who did it. And there's a movie that it's based on. And um, Katie Stark is a badass bitch who got shot in the face twice and lived to tell the tale. That's a fucking kick-ass fucking take-no-shit kind of... I bet now, it, like, is she still alive? Do you know? When is you she know what? Alive? I didn't look. Fucking... This happened in the 40s, though, and she sure. was in her 30s, so... She, if anything, she's super old, but yeah. she's probably not alive anymore. Yeah. But fucking A, like, that is fucking... It's crazy. I want to, like, hug her and high-five her and, like, tell her that she's an incredible person. Right? Just, like, Wow. Jesus wow. Christ. I the, what you a thing that you brought up is a thing that I always terrify that always terrifies me when I think about serial killers, which is that um depending on how prolific their their murders are and like the details of their cases, I often wonder like how many like did this person really kill 30 people or did they kill like 20 people and then they had like a copycat who got all their details and yeah. did it the same way. Yeah. Like I that's the thing that terrifies me. Like the very thought that like you think these were all committed by the same person, but maybe they only did like a majority of them. And then maybe there was a person or two who was like, that's a really good idea. And I could just do it. And they would think it was this other person. Isn't that that I feel like happened with the Zodiac killer. Oh, and definitely the BTK that those were there were copycats of those murders right. for that- sure. I was like, we haven't gotten into any of those. We haven't dived too much into murder stories. Now I really want to watch because I've never seen. There's a 1990s horror movie with, I think, Sigourney Weaver and Harry Connick Jr. called Copycat Hmm. about a copycat. But I'm like, I don't know. I didn't see it. I just remember that was a thing that existed. It's crazy. Murder's crazy. I need some food to wash this murder out of my mouth. White people are terrible. And... It's okay. They're getting murdered, so... (laughs) 
Oh, no. <laughs> I take it back. You said it. I, you said your words. It's okay. I'm white. Your words. I can say you that. Can I'm say white. It. Right. Exactly. You're allowed to say it. So. <laughs> your words. Hey, you sh- aired me and accused become? me of trying to murder you and put up all sorts of podcasts about me trying to murder you. So you get to keep this one up there about you <laughs> saying that. <laughs> I just want to point that out. I won't cut it out. Fine. Um, so if this episode offended you, you can really email us at deadtimestories. <laughs> deadtimestories with a Z, all one word, at gmail.com. Please follow us on Instagram, Deadtime Stories, all one word, same thing, uh, on Instagram. We're on Facebook. Please, if you haven't yet, subscribe, rate, and review us. We are still giving away our stickers, so if you want your own free Deadtime Story sticker, all you have to do is review us on iTunes or Facebook. Send us a screenshot either to our email or you can DM us on Facebook or Instagram with your screenshot and your address, and we will send you a free Deadtime Story sticker. So subscribe, rate, review, tell your friends, and thank you so much for listening. Thanks, guys. Have a good night. Thanks, guys. Don't get murdered. White people are terrible. Don't call the police. That was Stephanie. <laughs> and that was Sarah. And, and this, this has is been Dead Time Stories. Dead Time Stories is hosted by Sarah Heddens and Stephanie C. Ferguson. Music and editing by Eric Gershnow. Artwork by Remy Slackman.